thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and Rumble. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, onto the show. There was one time my brother John, my brother Sam, started referring to this story that I'd never heard before. They all believed Dad was responsible for taking out a Nazi fugitive living in Australia. And I was like, what? Boris Green, a partisan who fought in the forest and who made a name for himself. Jews who joined Jewish resistance had two main motives, survival and revenge. There was a bunch of Holocaust survivors. They were angry about Nazis in Australia, and something had to be done about it. But after the Second World War, thousands of Nazis, mainly from the Baltic states, entered Australia, posing as legitimate members of post-war immigration schemes. Unidentified, fully clothed, badly decomposed, all right. Jewish groups kept forwarding huge dossiers to the government but they could never get any action taken. You will not escape God's revenge. It is coming, even in Australia. There was a war going on after the war. If you had learned someone that had been responsible for killing your family was living in Australia. I would follow them and I'd kill them. It'd be very interesting if we could trace the family of one of these Nazi collaborators. Boris and did this and got away with it. I will shake his hand. But we don't speak about justice. That's right. Because justice was not done. Did you have to shoot Germans yourself? A partisan is a partisan. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 576. Releasing December 7 in select Australian cinemas is Revenge, Our Dad, the Nazi Killer, a documentary that explores the secret life of Boris Green, a respected patriarch, partisan, and Holocaust survivor who may have taken part in revenge killings against Nazis living in Australia. An absorbing documentary that engrosses with every twist-filled revelation Revenge, Our Dad, the Nazi Killer, also marks the latest film from director Danny Benmoshi. I'm glad to say he joins me now on the podcast. Danny, how are you today? Hi, good to be here. Thank you for your interest in talking about Revenge. Well, this is a movie that when I saw the, um, uh, I had an email got sent to me and I read a synopsis. And, you know, if I didn't see the word documentary, you could have been forgiven the fact there could have been some type of uh, like almost like a fictional film in a certain way, because we have seen a lot of movies and TV shows as such of that kind of kind of thing. But this was like real life like thing happened, not only that real life thing that happened like in our backyards, right? And it's, it's just the interest that just grew so much more. What's really fascinating about this story, though, is that I heard in the interview you say before that you don't you really find stories the stories kind of find you and it, that was the case with revenge as well so how is the case that 
his story found you? What was the what was the scenario in regards to that? Um, so it was almost five years ago to the day. It was Christmas Day. Um, I'm Jewish, so it's just a regular day uh, for me. And no big family gatherings or meals or anything like that. And But it's summer in Australia, and I was down at the beach house, um, uh, very content, lying on the couch, reading a book. Some friends came over, and they were invited to some other people for a barbecue. And they said, listen, these other people whose house was in the sort of similar beach area in Victoria said we could come too. I really didn't want to go along because I was content with my book. And also as a filmmaker, you kind of find that when people say, what do you do? Um, they go, oh, I've got an idea for you. And you have to mm. politely explain why that film is not a film, that film idea. And, and then you kind of have the same conversations about the films you've made. Anyway, as a concession to the people who were in my home, I said I would go along for an hour just to sort of be polite. And I did. And needless to say, the conversation turned to what do you do? And then it turned to, well, what have you made? And I'd recently made a film called Strictly Jewish, <coughs> excuse me, for SBS. And I just mentioned that. And then someone piped up, hey, my car was in your film. And it turned out this was Jack, Boris's son. And there was a shot of his car going down the street, coincidentally, in the Strictly Jewish documentary. Anyway, had the barbecue, went home. That was it. About a week later, I get a phone call from Jack. So, oh, listen, I just want to offer you kind of your help with something. So I just presumed here was coming the film pitch. And he said, listen, I'm a doctor and I'm really busy, but I'm investigating this story about my dad. And you're a filmmaker, so you do research. Can I employ you to do some research for me? So which I politely explained, listen, I'm not a researcher for hire, but tell me what it is that you need researched and I'll see if I can think of someone who can help you. And he goes, well, my dad passed away just a few years ago and I was recently sitting around with my older brothers and my older cousin and they started talking about this time dad went to Sydney in the 1950s to, to kill a Nazi. And I'm like, whoa, what? And so the long story short is, I said, listen, um, could we meet? So he wasn't pitching me a film idea, but when he mentioned it to me, and here we are five years later with a documentary that tells the tale. So there are three brothers. There's Jack, there's John, and there's Sam. Jack's the youngest. I mean, from what I remember from the film, Boris was like 50, I think, when Jack was born. Um, yeah, early 50s. Early 50s, yeah. So... My impression with Jack is that, because he's the one that's really kind of pushing to find out what was happening with Boris at that time, my impression of him was that maybe his relationship with his father was very different to kind of like for his brothers um, at that time. Because maybe when, you know, Boris in his 50s, a little, maybe a little more mellowed out when he was younger from, from, the, uh, from the indications of his older brothers. So for Jack, was he this kind of like a sort of way to kind of like know more about his father? Is that pretty much where it was, where it was coming from? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but that would be the conclusion that I would reach or have reached. And I think, yeah, I mean, when, if if you mean when, I don't know how old your memories go back, but let's say I think really I've maybe by the time I was 10 or 12, that I've got really strong memories and really starting to actually think about things. Well, Boris would have been in his mid 60s by then. Mm -hmm a much older man. And I think 
the older brothers, um, John and um, Sam, they worked with their father. They kind of knew him well. So they would have had both less need to discover dad. And two, maybe they knew dad better and therefore had less desire to know that side of him, a potential revenge side of him in too much detail. Documentary filmmaking is always interesting because you're filming real life and in real life anything can happen. I read that you said that this film was especially difficult for you because this thing, this story goes in all different paths that you can easily just keep keep walking down and finding even more revelations and more revelations and more revelations. How did you go about making sure that you're just focused on the central theme of Boris and not get too sucked in with the other things? Because you can easily go down a rabbit hole with so many other places in this movie. Yeah, that was the big challenge with this film. And in that regard, from a filmmaking, from a documentary filmmaking point of view, it's probably been the toughest film I've made because the, the story kept opening up into all these ways, not necessarily directly connected to my core character, Boris, and his family, but related to the broader story. And um, to be honest, my editor, an English guy, uh, Hugh Williams, he, every time I would say, let's do this, let's talk about mm. this Nazi or this killing or this suspicious incident, he'd just say, okay, how do we bring this back to Boris? Like, bring this back to Boris. Because otherwise, from a storytelling point of view, you got a danger of, of losing, um, losing your audience. So, you know, I I was making a documentary film. I wasn't writing the definitive book or encyclopedia of Nazis in Australia and what happened to them. So it was just a matter of, so, so for example, at the end of the film, um, I, I'll just give you an example. So at, at the end of the film, at the end of the film, we have two stories of um, a couple of incidents of things that happened particular things that happened to Nazis or three cases of different things that happened to different Nazis. I've got so many stories that are not in the film. I'll give you one, right? In the, in the, in the 1959 to 1960, five Lithuanian war criminals died in car accidents in and around Melbourne. And you go, blimey, Lithuanians are bad drivers, right? Mm. And then so we thought, it's a bit suspicious. Let's see what we can find here. Um, unfortunately, many of the coronial and police documents have simply been lost and don't exist. But there was one file about a Nazi in Footscray. And um, it turns out that this Nazi died in a car accident and the driver who accidentally killed him was a Mr. Cohen. And you go, what are the odds, right? A Nazi and a Mr. Cohen, I guess it could happen. You get pretty high odds, but it can happen. Then it turns out that Mr. Cohen was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. And you go, we'll never know, right? Because Mr. Cohen's family didn't want to talk to me, but we'll never know. But I would put make I would put my house, I'd place a bet on this. But again, it was another story, a great story. So we just had to be discerning. And to be honest, every documentary is about making choice, every film, but every documentary in particular is about making choices. And ultimately, um, you know, you, you, you have 
dozens of hours of footage and archive and you just chip away until you hope you've made the right choices. And um, I'm not sure if you ever do 100% or at least as a filmmaker, I'm never 100% I've done that. But it, but so far, you know, in the festival screenings we've had, the audience reaction seems to seems to be positive. You mentioned just before um, Nazis in Australia. That was really incredibly shocking to me when I when I was watching the documentary because the thinking always is, especially in pop culture, oh, the Nazis fled to Argentina. Or, you know, you think of movies like The Boys in Brazil, you're like, oh, things like that. You don't think, you know, maybe in, uh, you know, Darling Harbour or in Footscray or something like that, like something, so someone could be there. Um, how much of a shock was it to you? And also, do you know whether this was something that was... Um, um, specific to Australia? Do you know if other allied countries also had this kind of problem yes. as well? Yes, yes. Other allied countries also had Nazis in their midst. Other allied countries also employed Nazis as Cold War spies. I think there was what's slightly different about the Australian experience is the number of war criminals who came here. Because essentially there was a mass migration of Baltic refugees and people who were not prepared to live under Soviet rule for a range of reasons. And one of those reasons for some of those Baltic um, individuals was because, well, they'd been allied with the Nazis killing people and the Soviets wouldn't give them much of a, um, um, a pleasant homecoming. Um, the scale of collaboration in the Baltic countries was massive. The scale, it, it seems like putting it into percentages seems demeaning in a way, but um, the number of Jews who died in Lithuania, for instance, was the highest of any community in Europe which is really saying something. We're talking about 96%. Imagine if 96% of Australians, I don't know what would that be, 22 million people were wiped out basically like that. And it happened, sure, the Nazi Germany led it, but it was only possible because of the wide scale local collaboration. So one, we're talking about the scale of the community who came out, the type of community that came out. And then, of course, we have this unique situation that more Holocaust survivors came to Australia per capita than any other country outside of mm. Israel. Yeah. So this led to a situation where literally um, we would have, there are multiple, multiple examples of Holocaust survivors who saw the killers of their families on the street, who saw SS um, guards over their garden fences um, who saw uh, Nazis from the camps they were interned in on the buses. So what do you do when you're confronted with such a scenario? What do you do when you go to a government and the government does, does nothing? What do you do when the government is actually protecting Nazis, not just doing nothing? Now, I met Holocaust survivors who to this day say, I saw this Nazi and I should have killed him. But killing someone's a big deal and they were just not killers. 
They couldn't do it. You know, as a teenager growing up in London, there was a war crimes investigation in the 1980s. And I wrote my first probably creative work I wrote was a fictionalized story of some teenage Jewish guy who goes out and kills a Nazi. But I put that down on paper. I couldn't actually go out and do it, even if I felt the Nazi deserved to be knocked off. So what do you do? And then there's someone like Boris. The difference is he's a Nazi killer. He was a partisan. I've seen his Soviet records, which list the battles he was in, the number of Nazis he killed. He speaks openly about it himself. So then you're getting into different territory. You're, you, you, know, you know the government's doing nothing about it. Imagine the trauma and despair. We're talking about this in 2023. These were incidents that were happening when the events of World War II were fresh and at the forefront of people's minds. What do you do? And you've got someone like Boris, um, who you go to, um, who you turn to, and ultimately, he may have done whatever he did. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Tee Public. Tee Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Tee Public is sure to have something you love. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Gift Card Store. Australia's leading provider of gift cards, Gift Card Store offers a variety of prepaid MasterCard and Visa cards in physical or e-card format. You can even design your own card as the ultimate personalised gift. With Gift Card Store, you can gift the gift you know they will love. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews and top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. I think in the movie it was um, Boris's son John who talked about there was a war after the war. And I think from my perspective, a lot of that comes down to not only the experience that um, Boris and his brother and other people had as well. But also, I think there's like an everlasting trauma that came with that as well, right? I mean, these are really incredible traumatic experiences. And I think a lot of ways people, Holocaust survivors, kind of dealt with those um, experiences in a kind of therapeutic way was telling their stories in, for example, at the um, Holocaust Museum in Melbourne. They tell their stories on 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 camera and such. Um, when you yourself, as a, as a Jewish man, and you watching these stories from you know generations before a couple of generations before you and you hear these stories and you are doing your research and sh- and such. Is there something that happens to you um, within yourself, not only not as a filmmaker but as a person, as before the the movie to after the movie? Because I'm sure before the movie you will have seen and heard a lot of things as well. But once you started getting into the grittiness of many of the experiences that a lot of these people had from Boris downwards. Um, I, I can only imagine the kind of um, the the changes that could happen to you personally and spiritually. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it forced me to meaningfully confront the moral question of revenge um, and how I how I perceive that. And I, I'm I've got no qualms revealing my hand. I'm on Boris's side, a hundred percent. I think I'm on Boris's side in the own right of the story 
And I'm on Boris's side. When I see uh, my family on my mother's side were all wiped out in Lithuania in the Holocaust. Um, just my grandmother survived because she got to Europe, to the UK before before the war. No one, no one survived. I grew up with no family on that side. And you don't appreciate that absence of something because it's not there until something causes you to realize that that's actually abnormal. And when I was looking for archive for this film of death pit killings, because it's important to point out that this was the Holocaust by bullets. This preceded the final solution, transporting people on trains, sticking them in, in um, ovens and up chimneys. Um, I came across a photo of the killings of the death pit of my own family in Lithuania. And that was really, I mean, I've been to Lithuania and made a film about it, but just a stumble, I've never seen this photo before of the killings in process. Like they could be members of my family standing there, lined up, waiting to be shot. And it's probably impossible to find anything more sobering um, than that. And it does cause you, I think you're right, it does cause you to question a whole range of facts in terms of, you know, where you belong, who you trust, and um, and the precariousness of, of, of life. And um, then your own position on the moral question, you know, because I think the two are connected, how you understand that history and the reaction and you and your families and communities place in it. And then that leads you to respond to, to the moral question. Um, uh, but the trauma, you know, the issue of trauma, um, you know, when you make a film, a documentary film, one of the mantras out there is, you know, prepare, have your plan, and then rip it up the day you start shooting. Mm. And I wasn't expecting this story of intergenerational trauma to be so strong. And that was probably a bit naive of me, uh, really. And it's it's like, how could it be otherwise? When you grow up exposed to, particularly the older brothers, Sam and John, saw and witnessed, they had the survivors coming around the whole time. They would be talking about their stories the whole time. Um, uh, growing up with that, you know, it's well recognized that there is both, there is Holocaust trauma in the living aside epigenetics in the second generation. And, and it's true in the third generation um, as well. So I could have made a film that could have, you know, we're talking before about what do you focus on? The trauma, I could have made a film just about that. Um, but it's important that we got it in there so just people could see it because I think that trauma explains the reaction to it. And going back to one of your earlier points, I think Jack had less of it yeah. than his older brothers. I don't know if that's answered your question or not. Or I've just been no, it's, it, no it's, it's, it's really well said. And I think also considering recent developments of what's been happening at, in Israel and such, I mean... There was a moment in the movie when I forgot um, who Sam was talking to, but um, it might have been one of the founders of the, of the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne. He was talking about the 
the br brutality that the Lithuanians had in regards to the slaughter of, of Jewish babies. And then I couldn't help but think, you know, this isn't the past. This is still happening now. This just happened last month, you know, two months ago, you know, and it's something that's going to come up over and over again. And I just don't know how, like, I don't know if anyone knows how to kind of confront that and how to get rid of that, because it just seems to me that that hatred, that evil is just insidious and in, in, in kind of eternal in a sort of way. So it's I think it's going to be, I mean, I can only imagine what screenings were like for you when you were showing this, because the, yeah. Be, well, I'll tell you something. Else. I'll tell you something. The film had its premiere at the Australian Jewish Film Festival, and then um, I was also in the UK where it had its premiere, a uh, British premiere, um, at the UK Jewish Film Festival. And we're talking about a Jewish specific crowd, but for me, two things. One, there are photos in there, there are death pit photos in there that I would have seen literally hundreds of times in the selecting of archive and the editing of this film. I looked at them through a whole new prism. Mm. They weren't just the past. They were the present as well. They were the kids at the Nova dance party in Southern Israel who were slaughtered in the sand dunes of, um, of the beach on October 7th. Wayne, um, who would have thought that we're having this conversation in early December, 2023, we would be talking about, or we would have in our very recent past, a matter of weeks, we would have scenarios of Jewish babies being burned. And, um, you know, for the Jewish audiences, there was a real resonance because because we thought the events of the Boris had to deal with and, and his community had to deal with ended in 1945. Mm. That's what we thought. That's why the Jewish world is so traumatized at the moment, because October 7 happened with the Hamas attacks and all the war crimes. And it's like, whoa, it's still going on. It's not, it's not a part of my, my grandmother's history it's now part of my history lived experience in terms of time when um uh parents are hiding in cupboards trying to keep their hands over the mouths of their babies and children to keep them quiet because there are people banging at the door who want to come in and kill them well that's straight out of the holocaust playbook right um, and so for audiences, I had to say, this film may be triggering for you. I had to just literally stand up in front of these crowds, not because of Holocaust trauma, but because of October 7 Hamas trauma. Yeah. And um, yeah, had the film come out a year earlier, it would have been seen and understood and its resonance would have been different. And of course, it's just hugely, hugely tragic. You know, one of the massive things to come out of October 7 has been the silence of women's groups in the West to all the rapes that happened on October 7. Something that's just, I just cannot comprehend at all. <laughs> not 
the rapes, the silence in response to the rapes by women's groups. And it reminds me, and, and here is that resonance of, you know, the silence of the Western world when the Holocaust was happening. They knew it was happening. Now, it's not the same. October 7 was not the Holocaust. There are, but in terms of imagery, resonance, similarities, trauma, there's 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 a lot going on. Um, and I think now one of the things, and it's separate story to the documentary, but one of the things is that we were now the third, I'm third gen... I'm second, I'm in my case, third generation from the Holocaust. Jack and his brothers were second generation from the Holocaust. Parents were survivors. Um, um, their children were third generation. Um, and you just kind of, as we thought, we were getting away from the trauma of the Holocaust. Um, then that trauma is back and then some. And, you know, there was a film and a book many years ago about anti-Semitism called The Longest Hatred. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been with us for a long time and and I expect it will be with us for a while, a while yet. And the thing is, uh, one other thing is that, you know, we shouldn't forget that, and I think this is another reason for the resonance, People didn't believe the Holocaust could ever happen because nothing like it had ever happened before, Mm. right? So (laughs) people say, why didn't Jews resist? Well, they didn't think they were going to end up going up a chimney. No one had that such thing hadn't happened before, right? Apart from the fact that they'd been dehumanized and diminished and physically weak and everything else before, before it got to that point. But one of the things is, um, you know, there was a rabbi in 1934, a young rabbi who stood up in a synagogue in Berlin and said, this is all going to end badly, right? We've got to get out of here. Our lives are going to be threatened. He was kicked out of his job, couldn't get another job in the whole of Germany for being a scaremonger. Um, He left went to British Mandatory Palestine. He survived. Most of his congregants did not. And I think for Jewish people now, and I think one of the reasons, it's it's a whole separate conversation, but how did Israel, the Israeli army, this strong army, let October 7 happen? And I think there's a feeling in Israel that we didn't take, Israel didn't take Hamas at its own words. Hamas want to rid the world of Jews, right? So... We know that genocide is on the agenda, right? But now we know that it's happened. Such a thing is possible. Um, And it's happened still within lived memory. So, yeah, I think, you know, the resonance of the film, the, the continuation of the trauma that may have been ending is is now, unfortunately, um uh back in quite a visceral way i think also there can be ramifications politically here in australia in regards to the revelations in regards to how many uh nazi war criminals were allowed in australia too i think there could be potential for that maybe maybe not i'm not sure but i think there can be that being said you said previously that you had 
so many other stories that you could tell, but you couldn't go down that road. Is there potential or maybe a series, um, I don't know, another movie or something like that where maybe in an episodic kind of way we can look at these different stories individually about how these uh, how these different Nazis can, came into Australia and in regards, and also, I don't know, if we could kind of backtrack or delve into how that happened, who's responsible for that happening, et cetera, because I think that that's a story within its own that should be explored more. Yeah, I suspect from a film point of view, I'm kind of done, you know, five exhausting years of my life. I do believe there's a pod, I am interested in making a podcast of this story, but, you know, it's a process of getting it commissioned, et cetera. So, yes, and I, and also I think the international dimensions, you know, there were Nazi SS groups operating in Australia that mm. had ties to Nazi SS and collaborator groups overseas. Mm. There's this whole international side to the story that we only touched upon in the film. There were Jewish survivors here liaising with Lithuanian Holocaust survivors in London swapping information. It's a much, much bigger story. So it is one that I feel is incomplete. Um, I'm not sure about a film just because of the sort of the reality of, of the process of filmmaking. Um, but I, I do see it as I, I as as a podcast. Whether I'll ever make it or not, I don't know. But the other thing I should say is, you know, I sat with my uh, researcher, Joey Watson, in the National Archives in Canberra, and we literally had 600 thick and sometimes not so thick files of Nazis who died and disappeared mysteriously, right? They'd never been looked at before because the war crimes investigation was if we find someone we can prosecute, we'll look into that case. If we can't find them or well, they're dead, there's nothing to look at. Yeah, No one's ever looked into the circumstance of their death or disappearance before until we came along with this film. It's beyond our capacity to look into all these cases. It requires the resources and the attention of a government to do so. And I think ultimately that's what require, is required if this is ever going to be, um, uh, if we're ever going to really know the, the full scale of the truth. Well, it's just one thread of just an incredible documentary, I've got to say, Danny. Um, everyone out there, Revenge, Our Dad, The Nazi Killer. So it's in um, uh, different cinemas around Australia. You've got the Ramek Ritz. You've got um, Dendi Canberra, Dendi Corparo, um, you know, a lot of places. Well, where's a good place where people can check out um, uh, some sessions, screening times? Do you have a Facebook page or a website or anything like that set up for, for the website? I will. Um, that's a very good point. I will put post it on uh, Facebook, uh, Identity Films and Productions, and I'll also put it, me, Danny Benmosher, on Twitter. So, um, yes, I will do that. And I'm not sure if enjoy is the right word of this film, but I hope viewers are engaged and stimulated and have something meaningful to reflect upon, both about the country that they live in and personally with the moral questions that unfortunately remain as relevant today as they did in the past. Well, Danny Benmoshi, I thank you so very much for your time today and thank you for your documentary. It's 
it's it's incredibly engrossing and to be able to talk to you about the, the documentary today has been uh, one of my highlights of the year and I thank you so very much for that well thank you for your interest and uh, best of luck for all your forthcoming editions of your show